One of the most commonly quoted scriptures right around Christmas time in December is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It being December, this uh, third month of my mission, um, got me thinking about why God sent Jesus Christ to do what he did for us. And uh, studying that in the mission environment gave me a, a chance to do a real deep dive into that and apply it to my life and my work as a missionary. This is episode three of Welcome to the Faro, Into Caesarea. The English scriptures that I took with me on my mission were the ones that I'd had since I had gotten baptized uh, 11 years prior to, to departing. So I had your standard issue triple, and then separate from that, I had a uh, King James LDS edition version of the Bible. And in the back of that, there were maps of uh, you know the Holy Land and uh, at various times in Old Testament eras and, uh, and then in the New Testament. Now I've got a big old quad that I purchased in 2007 because my old mission scriptures were excessively marked up from studying them over and over and over again. And uh, I wanted to get an all-in-one, plus my triple was falling apart. The, the cover is just about gone off of it. <laughs> the, the pages inside are kind of free-floating in a big old chunk. So I decided I should get a new one and maybe have a bit more uniform system of marking it up. But one of the things that I kind of lament is the changes in the old maps that were in the back. Uh, both editions of the scriptures here that the church uses have maps of the Roman Empire at the time of Christ, at his birth. Map 8 in the quad from 2007, and I think the church has since released a, another edition, and I don't know what the map situation is in that, shows the Roman Empire as containing Hispania, which is the Iberian Peninsula, Gaul, which is modern-day France, um, Italy, Macedonia, uh, a lot of that's going to be where Greece is now, and then the northern coast of Africa and part of uh, Asia Minor, as far as Syria and obviously Jerusalem, is, is one of its easternmost colonies. But in that old map of, of the Roman Empire at the time of Christ's birth, in the, uh, in the mid-90s edition of the Bible that the church was using, uh, it did kind of a blown-up version of the Iberian Peninsula, and it marked two cities— in the old Roman names, one of them was Caesarea Augusta and the other was Tarraco. And uh, those cities are 2,000 years old and they still stand today. And coincidentally, they were the first two cities where I was called to serve my mission. We'll get to Tarraco later. Caesarea Augusta is known today as Zaragoza, or to English speakers, Saragossa with an S. Um, the name has changed several times over the uh, over the centuries and over the millennia as different nations and tribes and cultures have conquered it. The Romans called it Caesarea Augusta for King Caesar Augustus, Emperor Caesar Augustus, I guess. And then later the uh, the Moors came in, the Arabs, and they changed it to Saracusta, which might have been an Arabic version of Caesarea Augusta that was just easier for them. And then you know, later Catholic kings came in and reconquered it from the Moors and so on and so forth. You, you put a name through Google Translate enough and it'll change and the same thing happens with proper nouns. And so now we have modern day Saragossa. 
So me being a Western American boy who was born in Bellflower, California, uh, a place that is a booming real estate hellhole now where everything's so expensive, especially for these small places, but once started out as farming country and before that Indian country, and we're talking that all that happening in, in a window of about a hundred years, uh, I wasn't used to keeping my feet on the ground in a place that was so old. Barcelona had a subway metro system because relative to Zaragoza, it was a much younger city and they could you know do these subterranean excavations to make tunnels and whatnot. Zaragoza didn't have a metro. They just had an above ground bus system because the city was built on top of old Roman ruins. Uh, plus there was a high water shelf from the Rio Ebro that flowed right through the middle of the city. But uh, suddenly this kid who was a product of Western America of transient family after transient family, um, you know, my, my parents moved from California to Las Vegas before that their parents moved from, you know, either Utah or Ohio to California before that their ancestors moved from Europe to America. Suddenly I'm standing in a place that is over 2000 years old in terms of human civilization. Uh, this city literally predates the birth of Christ and, uh, remarkably is, is about the same size as the Las Vegas Valley in terms of its municipal footprint. Uh, so it hasn't expanded too drastically beyond that. The population when I was there was about three quarters of a million, if I remember correctly. And my companion, Elder France and I were assigned to the Saragossa second branch. Uh, there were two branches there. Um, he had just come from the first branch, Elder France. He'd served on the other side of the river. And so he got to cover the whole city. He was there for about six months total by the time he finished training me. Uh, there were there were uh, well-established families there. I still remember the Lobaco family from Branch One, the Diaz family, the Amigos, the Wolfarts. Um, that's not a Spanish name, obviously. Uh, Johan Wolfart is, is German, but his wife, uh, Ines, was Spanish. Uh, Los Barceló, they were from uh, Argentina. The Sala family. Uh, but of course, the, the family that I've probably maintained the strongest friendship with over the years was the uh, Santidrian Bernal family. Um, the father's name was Antonio. The mother's name is Olga. Uh, I still talk to Olga on, on Facebook frequently. And uh, they have three daughters. The oldest is Shayla and then Sonia, who's close to my age, and then Natalia, who uh, she's probably about five years younger than me. Um, all tall, brunette, some of them blue-eyed daughters that uh, are all very, very talented with music. Their father is a musician, and so music plays a huge role in their family. They all play multiple instruments, string instruments, piano, all that. Just a, a very impressive family, and uh, you know, Olga has a tremendously warm heart, and uh, she's a lot of the reason why I've been able to keep in touch with them. Plus, I, I made really good friends with, with uh, Sonia after the mission. Nothing like, you know, trying to take a a chunk of Spain home with me or anything like that. We, we stayed in touch with instant messaging and email and stuff and just became really good friends. She even did a semester at BYU when I was living in Provo and uh, she messaged me one day on Facebook. She's like, Hey, I'm, I'm living in Provo now. I'm in this building called yada, yada, yada. I'm like, Holy crap. You live in the same apartment complex I do and uh, hadn't even known it. So we got to hang out a bit after the mission along with her cousin, Anna. So um, my, my personal and spiritual and emotional connection to the city of Saragossa is very strong. 
because I spent the first six months of my mission there. And then I've, I've kept in contact with a couple of the families since then. And it's just full of, of amazing people. They really made me feel like family. Um, Brotherhood runs, one's really, really strong in, in Saragossa. In fact, they have a nickname for people from, this is tricky. I'm trying to remember the difference here. The community of Aragon has three provinces in it. There's Saragossa, Huesca, and Teruel. Saragossa is right in the middle and it's the capital of Aragon. Um, somebody from Aragon and especially from Zaragoza will refer to another fellow Aragones as Maño. Uh, I was given to understand that it was a shorthand for hermano, which means brother, but you wouldn't just call them mano because that means hand. So they put an ñ on the end and they call them maño. Everybody's maño, maño, que pasa maño. And so if you were a maño, you were, you were in the club. And uh, so we, we learned that, you know, when we were stopping to talk to uh, uh, De La Pura Cepa Aragones, we would, we would uh, refer to them as maño once or twice in the conversation and just let them know, like, we're not just interlopers and we're definitely not trying to sell you something. We, we, we live here, we're, we're trying to be part of the culture, and we do have something to share with you. So um, all these little details just coming back to me now as I'm talking about it. Man, I love that place. I broke out in hives when I got transferred out. I was I was having such a hard time leaving because uh, I had so many beautiful memories there. But that is a small taste of, of Saragossa. Um, and as the missionaries assigned to the second branch, we had, this is the latest block that I've ever had for church. We had the 4 p.m. block because of the mediodia that happens in Spain, where you've got that two hour block, usually between two and four, you have lunch, then everybody has a huge nap. Missionaries didn't take naps. We had to study extra in the afternoon. That is seven days a week, 365 a year. So uh, the first branch would have the, the morning block. Everybody would go home for mediodia. And then the second branch would start at 4 p.m. and get out at 7 p.m., um, just crazy. I mean, the worst I've ever had it since then was a singles ward that met from 2.30 to 5.30. You kids listening, trying to figure out why I'm giving you times in a three-hour block. Ha ha ha. Anyway, so that's uh, that's Saragossa. That's your intro to it right there. That was uh, a chunk of the first bunch of things that I learned just in, in my week there, my first week there with Elder France. I told you a little bit about the apartment last week and uh, the fact that it was my first time unpacking in, yeah, two months, about nine weeks. Um, and my appreciation for Elder France and, and his diligence in wanting to stick with the mission schedule. We were supposed to be up every day, no later than 7 a.m., not even 7.01. We had to be up at 7 a.m. And in uh, between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m., we had to uh, you know, get dressed, get breakfast, go over our plans for the day, fit in an hour of personal study and an hour of companionship study, and then say our prayers and hit the streets and start looking for people to teach or you know, go to a, whatever appointments that we had. Um, in that hour of personal study, we would usually do some training on the Novell program and then some reading in, in Spanish. And then with the hour of companionship study, we had some formal Spanish study, and then uh, we would study our lesson plans together, whether it was just the general stuff that we needed to be familiar with or stuff that we had planned for the day. Um, I sensed a little bit of French, uh, frustration from Elder France on the uh, companionship language part because he had put a, a lot of work into, into preparing to teach somebody the language prior to... Uh, 
to training me, he had been the companion to the zone leader and he kind of had a sense that he was going to train next. And so he was developing that discipline and lesson plans and stuff like that, trying to figure out, you know, how to teach a guy Spanish. And then, you know, I come along and, you know, I, I know pretty much all the basic stuff that he's going to teach me. The rest of it is just cultural. And I had a lot of bad habits from California to shed. I would use a lot of Mexican slang and, you know, or even, you know, formal Mexican terminology that just did not apply in Spain. And so he, he kind of focused more on breaking me of those habits because it's stuff that made me stick out like a sore thumb. I, I kept wondering like, how can people tell that I'm American? I I'm white like they are. And I speak Spanish like they do. And I even use the lisp like they do. Oh my word. There's so much more to it than that. The difference between any American dialect of Spanish and the Castilian dialect is the same as any American accent of English and uh, a UK accent. You know, they can, they can see it, they can hear it, they can pick you up as a dead ringer from a mile away as, as just somebody like, okay, yeah, you, you're not one of us. You're, uh, you're an outsider. In all the time that I was there, and even later on in my mission as I improved with, with individual dialects and accents, there were a few times when people didn't believe me when I told them I was American, I was able to come off convincingly as Spanish. But as I mentioned before, tribalism is so rampant there that they, they can tell when you're from somewhere else and they're big on you know being from where they're from. I was never able to convince somebody I was from the same place they were. They might've thought that I was a Spaniard, but that I was a Spaniard from somebody else, from somewhere else, excuse me. Um, which is you know a victory and a defeat on, on some level, but uh, I would need a lot more than six months in any one area to convince somebody that I was a local uh, you know, to their province, to their community. So there was that, but, uh, got settled into the apartment, got settled into the schedule. And my next obstacle, which was a recurring theme throughout my mission was overcoming distraction. Um, I was big on movies. I still am to this day. Um, posters for movies would kind of hit Spain about six months after they hit America. And so movies that looked like they were just coming out that my companion would see the posters, you know, at bus stops or, Oh, that looks interesting. Oh yeah. That came out in the States, you know, back in the summer, it was cool. It was this, that, the other thing. And suddenly I'd find myself thinking about and talking about pirates of the Caribbean six months later. And no, no, you got to stop, you know, stop being distracted. It was way too easy. Well, in December of 2003, the big, huge movie coming out was return of the King. And I, like an idiot had gotten hugely into Lord of the Rings before I left. And Loved the music, started reading the books and everything. And then, of course, I had to go on my mission. And I was like, oh, why did I do that? Why did I dedicate so much uh, mental capital to that? Because every time I walked by those bus stops and there are movie posters everywhere on those friggin' bus stops and saw a uh, poster for El Señor de los Anillos, El Retorno del Rey, I just kind of wanted to hit my knees and scream at the sky. Like, why did I, why did I get into this? Uh, other distractions that I dealt with were the very slow mail system. Um, Spaniards were very proud of their 30 to 35 hour work week and uh, you know, unions are very heavily prevalent there. And with unions come uh, union strikes and debates and whatnot. Later on in life, I would try to learn French and two or three different systems or books that I picked up for learning French. You know, it was mostly like at a level just above what you would need to be a tourist say there was a book with 25 chapters in it, one particular chapter would be dedicated to learning the vocabulary and sentences that you would need to deal with train strikes because it's so huge. It's part of the culture. Uh, it wasn't that big of a deal 
in Spain, but you still had to be kind of aware of uh, the numerous holidays that they would take and how that would affect the mail system. Whereas, you know, in the U.S., you're used to getting mail six days a week, except for major holidays. In Spain, you'd get it about I don't know, four days a week. It wouldn't really want to run on Saturday and and all that. So between the delays that it would take for a letter of mine to cross the Atlantic, get to my friends, and they would get away from their busy life, maybe write me a response, and then it would cross the Atlantic again and get to me, get to the city, get to some mail carrier who decided he was going to work that day and drop it in my mailbox. You know, there was about a three-week lag between letters. And, you know, I had just barely started to come into the era of instantaneous communication as the internet became popular when I was in middle school onward. I can't imagine what it's like for for kids these days. I imagine that that is kind of what prompted the policy change about a year and a half ago where um, they started to to allow missionaries to call home every week instead of, you know, on Mother's Day and Christmas. But um, speaking of which, I had to schedule my my Christmas call that year. And uh, they've got these um, like kind of cyber cafes, phone cafes, where there's uh, a booth inside or there's a row of booths and you can you can just pay at the counter and tell them where you're going to call and they'll give you a, a procedure like, okay, if you're calling this country, you got to do this country code, then your area code and blah, blah, blah. Um, in Saragossa, we didn't do that. We just went and bought a, uh, a phone card from uh, a corner store. And then we went to a member's house to the Wolf Arts house and, you know, kind of took turns using their phone. So I made my Christmas call and in a room full of, of other missionaries as we were hanging out and kind of having a Christmas day over at the, uh, the Wolf Arts. It wasn't on Christmas day. It was on a Saturday. I remember that much, but called home and, and, was a, again, you know, it's hard not to be distracted at the holidays and to to want to be back home. Things were going a little bit tough for my family. My dad had just lost a finger, uh, you know, working on a project at the house, and and uh, things were slowing down at his job. And and uh, without me there doing you know 50, 60 hours a week working on houses, um, flipping houses was a lot harder because you know I was his main laborer. My little brother was a sophomore in high school. So, you know, there were, there was a big change with me being gone. And so I was thinking about that. And I remember talking to my mom about it. She just said, no, you know, you are where you need to be. Don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. You know, economic viability and, and, uh, financial prosperity. Those are, those are nice things to have, but it's really not why we're here. And, and, uh, you know, as I've said before, I would, I would remember that, many times throughout the course of my mission. Um, something else that I decided to, uh, to talk about in this episode was uh, I tended to get in a lot of fights with Elder France. Um, as I've touched on before, we were very similar personalities and my, my pride was offended when I saw flaws in him and then had to admit that I had those same flaws in terms of, of pride and ego and overconfidence and stuff. And, that was was when I started to learn, and you know, obviously I had gotten a taste of this before with other companions that I'd been assigned to. Uh, I started to gain the testimony of the fact that the Lord knew who to pair me up with so that I could learn the things that I needed to know as a missionary. I had eight companions between Elder France at the beginning and Elder Jones all the way at the very end, who you'll, you'll hear about in a couple of months. I had eight total companions in Spain and I would say that seven of them, I know 
what I needed to learn from them. Yeah, you know what, now that I think about it, the eighth one, probably two. He and I, we don't really talk, but that's a different story for another day. But while I was still in the uh, the early hothead go-getter stages of my mission, and you know, I found myself fighting with Elder France, as it was kind of his assignment to to take me down a notch and and remind me, you know, yes, you're here because you know you are you, and God wants you here, and He has called you to this specific place. But you need to stop being so cocky about how good your Spanish is, and and uh, you know, be a little bit more open to learning from people instead of trying to teach everybody how to do it. And, uh, coupling all that with the fact that it was at the biggest holiday of the year. And then I was away from home and it was my first big series of holidays away from home. I, I struggled a little bit in that first month, but never with desires to throw in the towel, just more of a desire to, to have things go easy. I wanted it to be comfortable and that's not what a mission is. Uh, in many different ways, a mission is two years of being uncomfortable if you get along with your companion, maybe you're in a hard area or maybe you're dealing with a physical illness. You know, one of the most common problems that missionaries have is ingrown toenails and plantar fasciitis and you know foot problems or you know over there in Spain we'd get stomach bugs frequently if you drank the water and you lived in a city that was a little too close to the coast. I mean any number of things could go wrong or you'd be Worried about a girl back home when she sends you a, a wedding announcement that she's getting married to some tool who isn't you, which happened to me a couple of times. You know, so all these things pile on to you, but you got to remember why you're there. That scripture that I shared at the beginning, John 3.16, um, if you think about it in the context of the fact that we are all spirit children of our Father in heaven, and that makes Jesus Christ our elder brother, he was the elect. He was the one chosen to be the savior. Um, and he had the most important mission of all here on earth. But if we understand our spiritual lineage and why God sent us here at the different times that he did, if we have more faith in that, if we develop a stronger testimony of that, it will help us to understand our trials a little bit better. better. And I thought about that as we got closer to Christmas, to my first Christmas in, in Spain, through my first Christmas in Spain. And that's ultimately what helped me figure out, you know, why, why am I here? Why am I feeling the things that I'm feeling? Okay, there are some personal things that I need to set aside. And uh, as President Hinckley's father told him once famously, forget yourself and go to work. And throughout the next 21 months, um, I would see over and over again that that was absolutely the truth. That was the way to be successful as a missionary, to remember that it's not about you beyond the extent that it's about what you can do for other people while you're there. On a closing note, I would say this, and it's the kind of thing that I wouldn't have really a frame of reference for prior to becoming a father. Um, but there were things that people told me before I went on my mission that I was told over and over and over again, you know, forget yourself. Don't worry about the distractions. Don't worry about the stuff at home. And I understood that on a technical level. I understood that what they were saying was probably true. I wasn't going to argue with it, but knowing something theoretically and knowing it practically are, are very different things. Um, 
before I became a parent, I had an idea of what kind of parent I wanted to be. And I still have that idea. There's the differences in how I'm going to do that. Especially when you've got this little 40 pound, five-year-old tyrant running around the house that won't heed a single thing you say, especially not on the 123rd or 124th time that you said it to him that week. Um, becoming, uh, a parent in this life has really strengthened my understanding of, of God's infinite patience with us and the fact that you know, he is a God of discipline and a God of expectation, a God of order and a God of commandments, but he is also loving and long-suffering. He, he wants us to get home to him. He wants us to get back to him. He's made it possible for us to do that. We just need to meet his conditions and live the way that he has told us to live. Um, you know, I want to reward my children. I just, I can't reward or reinforce bad behavior because that wouldn't help them become good people or great men. And looking back now, I see that some of this uh, refining process in the early days of my mission didn't quite take shape the way that I expected that it would. I thought it would be pretty similar to the ways that uh, other people talked about the early days of their mission, how they kind of cried themselves to sleep, frustrated over the language and the fact that they weren't getting it and, and all that. Um, that was not the trial that I got to have. I got to serve in a country where I already spoke the language. I had to make some minor tweaks to it, but I had that hurdle behind me. Um, for a lot of others, I think, that, that go to a country where they've got to learn the language and the culture from pretty much zero, and they've got to deal with those frustrations and those anxieties, uh, that's got to be very humbling for them, and it happens quickly, and the ones that are successful are the ones that that set aside their pride, and, and uh, they have every reason to, because they, they know that they're in over their head with the language. Um, for me, uh, overcoming my pride was was going to be... A, a big early obstacle, I would say it would, would really encompass the first half of my mission. Not to say that I ever became, you know, perfectly humble or, or anything like that, but there's a reason that the second year of my mission, I think, was a lot more effective and successful in many ways than the first year, and not just because I had a year of experience as a missionary under my belt. It was because I finally figured out in what ways I was proud and in what ways I needed to set that pride aside. And I see why not only was I assigned to Elder France as his trainee, but why I was also put in that zone in Saragossa with the other missionaries there, why I was put in a district with uh, Hermana Nations and Hermana Wareham, um, you know, two women that had a couple of more years of real life experience on me. Um, if I remember right, Hermana Nations had already graduated college and I think had a year of you know, life in the workforce and all that under her belt before getting her mission underway. Uh, Ermana Wareham was almost done with college and she had plans to go on to law school, which she eventually realized. Uh, she and I were very different people in just about every level and every metric that you could imagine. And uh, we, we sparred a lot. And it would be really easy to say that it was because we were both proud and stubborn and yada, yada, yada. But Really, it comes down to the fact that I was, and that I was kind of beholden to, what's the right way to say this? 
values that were outside the purview of a missionary. Um, she and I were very politically different people. And, you know, one of the things that they tell us about in the little missionary handbook, the, the little white rule book that we carry around in our pockets all the time is, you know, you're not there to talk politics with anybody. And uh, it, it was kind of easy to get short-sighted and think that that just meant that we weren't supposed to to bring it up with people on the street. And, oh, my word, did it come up often anyway. You know, like I said, I was there six months after the invasion of Iraq and, you know, Spain was was part of that. Uh, at a governmental level, but on the ground, the people were not fans of that. And uh, they, they took it out on us Americans pretty frequently. And Hermana Wareham had her opinions and I had my opinions. And anytime she and I brought it up in like a district meeting or a zone meeting or just in casual conversation, it never ended well. And uh, it, it could have gone away just if, if I refused to, to talk about that subject. And just remember, you know, I'm not there to be Graham Bradley, a guy who talks about politics. I'm there to be Elder Bradley, a guy who's there to share a message of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. So these were these were the early trying days when I, I started to figure out what I was doing to hold myself back from being a successful missionary, uh, both in terms of endearing myself to the ward members and earning their trust so that they would feel comfortable inviting me over to talk to their friends or, you know, talking to people on the street and, you know, letting them know that I was, I was sincere about this important thing that I was trying to share with them as well as, you know, working well alongside, you know, the other missionaries in my zone in my district. Um, I was, I was given those trials that would help me realize what I was doing wrong, you know, as a missionary. And it had nothing to do with learning the language and the culture. Those things were just kind of, backdrops they were tangential to what to what my my real obstacles were and god knew what i needed he revealed that to my mission president president watson he knew where to send me and who to send me with and it was it was like shifting without a clutch there for a couple of weeks but it slowly started to settle in and and i'm glad that it did especially the way that it did so bringing this all around to John 3.16, remembering why God sent Christ, I also needed to remember why God sent me to Spain. And the sooner I got a grasp of that under my belt, um, the sooner I started to really find joy in, in, uh, in the work that I was doing. So that's it for this week. Tune back in next week to see what January was like in 2004. Till then, keep the faith.